Hi, this is Amber and Hannah with Jen is Sometimes Whiskey, and we're here for our second installment of our history series about Jen in the 20s. So we're going to be talking about Jen in the 1820s. It's really fun. We talk a lot about gin palaces, about the improvements and innovation in gin and distilling, and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, you get to hear Ross say some crazy things. We all definitely are free to good cocktail for the 1820s. And then, you know, we're just going to talk because... That's what we do. And we love to have you listen. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. You want to tell real quick our listeners about the little Amber advice that I sent you from my childhood? There's a lot of advice from your childhood. Also, your childhood might have happened in 1920, might have happened in 1960. I don't know because you're a time traveler and your childhood photos are insane and your friends are all ghosts. Is that the advice you're referring to? Yes. You can have friends if they're ghosts. No, I've seen I think that was the point. even know the term ghosty. Okay, listeners, this is why I sent her last Monday because I'm an introvert. Hannah is not. Only no. kid. Hannah is not. Yep. Super small town. Hannah, small town, but not as small as the town I came from. So in the front yard, when I couldn't have friends over, my friends were busy or whatever, and by friends I mean the neighbor boys, Chris and Brian, I would play wiffle ball and kickball by myself and ghosties. And maybe the tree, like maybe a tree was a person, which just really means that I tossed the ball up and hit it with my bat and ran bases by myself. That's what ghosty means. So ghosty is like, ghosty on second, means that an imaginary person is on second while you're playing your game if you don't have enough players. I feel like you as a child, though, that ghost person, like you downplay this, that person had a backstory (laughs) and a style. Probably you ate lunch with them. I don't know. Like there was probably a lot involved. Um, I took all the neighborhood pets and sometimes had lunch with them and tea parties because that's, they were my friends. Yeah, no. I mean, you've been ready for this your whole life, Ross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my advice to Anna was when you're feeling a little cagey, that's okay. Be a little Amber. Just be a little Amber. Stop be a little baby Ross. Which is an extra roar. The, the inside of my soul just fell out of my body. <laughs> um, oh, and so- shout out to my cousin Roger, who's like the only family member that knows that I have a podcast, who has said that he would listen to it. He probably will. So thanks, cousin <laughs> Roger. This is going way into that college radio vibe. Like, hey, Devin, you said you would listen. I helped you with your homework. You said you'd listen. Here's a stupid song you wanted, <laughs> Devin. And then like, uh, actually Derek, actually not Devin, Derek would be the name. Derek, I'm not going to help with your homework if you're not going to call in like I asked you to. Click. <laughs> the next song is up for you guys. It's by the Wallflower. So I don't think you know this about me. I actually was a college DJ my sophomore, junior, and senior year. And Ross is wagging her head at me like she just beat me in a game of Foursquare on the playground. Um, do I do the gin pounding story now? You read that yeah. One okay, so uh, everyone knows we try to share a founding story, gin, whiskey, otherwise. So we've told our gin founding stories. This is why we were always asking, doing shout outs on our Instagram page, wanting to hear your gin founding stories. So we have a wonderful person. Her Instagram account is called mothers underscore ruined underscore Jen. She was, I think, our first person that responded to us that was not friends that we forced to put a comment on our page. So thank you for that. (laughs) She's from the UK, and she just posted, like, this beautiful photo of her gin collection. So check that out. It's it's gorgeous. So anyway, her gin founding story is that she was bored with the same drinks over and over again, and that she was pretty addicted. I shouldn't say addicted. 
because that makes her sound like an alcoholic. She's a stranger, nor does she use that word. That's my paraphrasing. But that she likes sweet drinks, like amaretto drinks, Malibu. Like, I, I can kind of picture, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people start out drinking those kind of drinks, right? They're accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And then she said that her cousin, see, cousins? Cousins had a pink gin with a strawberry garnish, and she thought, that looks very nice. And so she tried it, and she was completely hooked on gin drinks. She said that since that time, she started actually collecting gins, and she has 37 bottles. Wow. And then some miniatures, because she likes miniatures, and that her and her mom have made homemade gin, and that she absolutely loves, learn- like us, loves learning about gin. She never gets bored, and she's always amazed with all the different choices that are available. How how cool is that? And then she she went on and said, I don't think that we have this here in the U.S. That her favorites are brambles and blackberry gins. Ooh, yeah, no. Um, And I think some grocery stores I've seen in the U.S. have actually been downsizing their gin selection. I don't really know why, but I'll have to keep an eye out for that. So thank you for that. And thanks for her story. That's great. Yeah, how fun is that? Please, we want to learn how you first, maybe it wasn't your first drink of gin because maybe your first drink of gin was like gross beef eaters. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's fine. (laughs) But yeah, no, we want to hear like, yeah, like what you like about it. Sometimes it's just, oh, it looked pretty or whatever, but that's still interesting. And um, I think from like a industry standpoint, like there's so many different people making cool stuff. Yeah there's probably something that's going to fit what you like and i hope people find that there's an ant on my microphone somehow sitting in the middle of my what, what you got going on in there ross were you, were you eating biscuits over your <laughs> microphone while watching your british procedural no no <laughs> you said that and then sort of sad you're like i should have i should have done it wow it's kind of sad i did think about making some tea for it well there you go well what are you drinking right now ross uh coffee just leftover coffee that I made from like five hours ago. How about yourself? Just water. But I do have a cocktail for us for the 1820s. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Let's just, this is maybe the best way to kick into our 1820s conversation. Yeah. So what, what would be a good drink to have at that time? So I was looking through some stuff and have you ever had a brandy crusta? So it's, I'm going to get to the recipe kind of around by the way. The so brandy crusta was invented in New Orleans in the 1850s. It's very sugary. It's cousin of a sidecar. But what it does is it highlights sweetened liquors or can, like more kind of candied flavor notes with more botanical and other bitter to make it kind of more of a cocktail cocktail, not just a dessert. So this recipe is a gin crusta using old time gin. It's called the TVD Cresta from Tales of the Cocktail Foundation. The gin Cresta is two ounces of Heyman's Old Tom Gin, a couple dashes of Fee Brothers Barrel Age Bitters, a quarter ounce of St. Germain Elderflower. Good switch out the Elderflower liqueur for rose water. Pretty drink is going to be a thing when we get to the gin palaces. Gin palace. Ooh. Gin palaces. So, Rock, what do you think is happening in the 1820s? No, do you mean. In the U.S., what's happening in the U.S., or do you mean just what's happening in general? Increase in travel, right? Yeah. And then an industry, and we're starting to see, at least in the U.S., starting to see the movement from agricultural areas to urban centers, although we haven't hit the stride there. Correct. Very good, Ross. Great job on this Jeopardy round. Thank you. Happening. Mm-hmm. A little bit you know, of do you know where that happens in the U.S.? I actually know this. So where the first industrial revolution... Where it kicked off in the United States? Not sure. globally? Sure. And yeah, now, maybe now, a little bit after 1820s, but yeah. 
It was in Rhode Island, actually, in a textile building. The actual name of the facility and town is escaping me as I brag about this to the entire world that I actually know this fact, but that's where I started. Ross, not uneducated, not great on the details, though, sometimes. (laughs) That's my life, everyone. That's Ross's life. Mm -hmm. Lots going on. People are moving around. The ability to make things is obviously happening faster. That's it includes the distilling situation too, right? Distilleries are becoming like real distilleries. Not no, I didn't like, realize that happened in that time period. Yeah. Well, I um, guess that makes sense because of our friends to the south, Kentucky, see the rise of, I don't even know if it was bourbon then, but the rise well, yeah, of Yeah, I think we call, probably call it whiskey, like the general collective whiskey at that time. So yeah, so you have in the U.S. you have like there people are getting better at growing food. You have um, more people in the workforce, and so you've got a lot of people contributing to the wealth of very few people. But everyone is very oh, interested. I'm sorry, like 2020. Like what? Like what? Yeah, what? yeah, yeah. So it's kind of crazy how this always happens. But there's also some other there's some exciting things that are also happening so beethoven's ninth symphony debuts in vienna see i'm i'm if you can't tell a music nerd uh i'm not a music nerd compared to actual music nerds i should say i do enjoy beethoven i'm not ashamed no that's fine that's completely okay i think a good portion of the world's probably on board with you so then also uh one country adopts its name officially it had once been known as new holland which is also a town in illinois but and also is one of my favorite spirit makers in michigan continue and beer yeah. they make great beer i just don't drink a shit ton of beer so new holland it had once been known as new holland this country adopts its name in 1824 which country do you think it is ross new york which country <laughs> <laughs> a nation state try again uh, well they officially adopted New Holland as no, New Holland? No, it had once been known as New Holland. It had been called New Holland off and on for a while. Uh-huh. In the 1820, early 1820s, and even before that, this name had been circulating. In 1824, it officially adopts this name. But how do we know this country now? Belgium. No, but interesting, kind of close-ish. It's Australia. What? I did not know that. Yeah, 1824. So for, yeah, so our Jennifer suppliers, that's where they're at. And the UK, King George is in power, but he's effectively led by prime minister. Wait, wait, did I hear this correctly? That yes. Australia was supplying the global market with Juniper? Juniper. Hmm, what I did you just know. say? About no, the Dutch are, survi- are supplying the, the global market with Jennifer. Oh, okay. I completely misunderstood you then. It's okay. okay. Yeah, we don't want to get the get the uh, Aussies all up in arms about that. So the Dutch are supplying Jennifer, which we'll come back to in a bit. So UK built built its first railway in 25. Um, U- the US is kind of a mess. So 1824, 1812, we just had to deal with. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Like this obviously continues for like <laughs> centuries. So it's the start of the what we call the era of good feelings which I always forget about it. We kind of skip over this in history, really. The 1824 election was a mess. The Electoral College had to decide between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Oh, um, oh shit. That was that election? Yeah. Yeah, that one, 1824. Yeah, so J.Q. Adams, he gets there. He did not get the popular majority. Um, but then we're like, oh, well, what's the worst that can happen? Jackson gets, ele- gets elected in 1825, 28, sorry, and it all goes downhill. John Quincy Adams wins, but not everybody's very happy about it. Everybody kind of retaliates. Jackson wins. He wipes out thousands, maybe millions, I don't know, horrible, terrible person. So yeah, so that's the 1820s, what's happening. He starts to see, so remember how in the 1720s, it was like, you might be drinking gin but this is also really gross mm-hmm. and dangerous and why we had all those gin acts to kind of try to mm-hmm. 
control like consumption but like also you're, just, you're killing yourself by drinking gin and not just because you might totally yeah liquor tasted terrible so like the amount the ingredients that were used to fix the flavor were not safe either mm-hmm. but so following the gin craze before we get here to the 1820s it's important to note that gin companies are starting to kind of figure out that they need some quality control mm-hmm. or else they're going to get shut down and they're going to lose customers and, and Hannah, can i ask you a quick question and you may yeah. or may not know the answers when you say gin companies would that primarily be in the no it wouldn't so european market so the uk and mm-hmm. no so yes yeah yeah uk the dutch parts of belgium probably so the dutch are making jennifer which mm-hmm. is more of a liqueur than gin but when it comes to the u.s it's called it's all called gin mm-hmm. in the u.s we're not necessarily producing gin right no so actually yeah so here's a quick question for you ross the u.s imported more jennifer than gin how much more how many times more jennifer than gin let's go with 31% more. 31 times. Okay, that's that would be a lot. So about six times more. Do you remember our first episode with Ryan when mm-hmm. I gave him some gin that I really like and he thought it was garbage? It didn't make it into the episode <laughs> because you'll hear uh, Brian do a spit take. Also, yeah, that's in the gin taste <laughs> episode. Feel free to check it out. But at the time in the U.S., cocktails started to become a thing too. Mm-hmm. Um, bars and pubs that would have had gin might have added a punch to it, might have added another liqueur, maybe some brandy. So it would have been pretty sweet drink that's really but, i'm glad that you pointed that out that's really interesting Hannah. yeah when it, it also just kind of shows there's a few different markets we're talking about mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. the gin palaces that kind of stuff i'm going to be talking about a little bit that's very uk based mm-hmm. and very distinct i'm not really going to get into the u.s side because it's still so muddled with kentucky and whiskey and yeah. back. surprise surprise and you know what's playing in my mind right now chris stapleton's tennessee whiskey yeah so if it, it replaced smooth like tennessee whiskey to mm-hmm. lawless unregulated and possibly of splinters that's your tennessee whiskey of the 1820s right. <laughs> so if chris Stableton, if you're listening awesome. and want to re-record for our 1820s episode that's kind of what it's like so yeah so gin's getting better whiskey is slightly improving but also just a mess in the 1820s so back to the uk for a second so ross which gin company you would know of them now they're definitely not crap they're not even one that i really like that much but an important step in 1769 they opened a distillery pushed for quality control and review of like the distillation process. Mm-hmm. UK company, which one, what one do you think it is? Oh goodness, one of the big ones in the yeah. UK that probably is really simple to get your hands on here. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, I've seen it at a house party, I've seen it at a bar. I've- oh no, is it the one that I just mentioned and didn't say nice things about? Beef- I don't think it's Beef Eaters. No. I think it's it is Bombay or Tangeray. No. No, I think actually Bombay might be a little bit younger than this one. Did you give up? Yeah, I don't know. Gordon's. No, stop. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> Ross launches her face into her laptop. So yeah, wow. gorgeous. Well, now I have to now I have to be a fan because that's really awesome that they were so inventive at the time, right? Yeah, you can be a fan of them historically. You don't have to be a fan of them now. It's kind of the way I feel about um, hoop skirts. I mean, like, sure, fun to play with. I'm not gonna wear them now. But... Or if you have friends over and they don't really give a give a flying squirrel. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep our label clean, and I didn't drop something. No, else. we won't. That's fine. Okay. And they just want to drink whatever, maybe buy some Gordon since they were the innovators of their time and let them drink that instead of your good shit, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a friend who brought them over and I gave it back. So they um, have a triple distilled process. They still use the same triple distillation oh, process. Like yeah. So like very much become like they're like 1769, basically 
we've got to have like a brick and mortar place. And if people don't start having some quality control, like no one's going to let us sell it. That's really cool. Yeah, Parliament would just be like, no, like this is not worth it. Like we have like the beer companies are way farther in our pockets. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks beer is like a cute, jolly drink, generally better. You know, so that's kind of where that is. Fast forwarding from that. In the 1830, you have the 1830 have the Beer Act, mm-hmm. which creates a cheap license to sell beer. So gin has to compete with that. And the gin license is still relatively pricey for the time, right? Yeah, yeah. It went from 50 pounds to 10 pounds, but it's still pricey. Still a little bit difficult to get your hands on. Now we're back in the 1820s, leading up to the Beer Act. Everybody saw the writing on the wall. And then we have gin palaces. Oh, I can't wait to. I don't know anything about gin palaces, except that it reminds me of our beloved Sherlock show where he goes to the Mind Palace. That's it. Is there also okay, a gin so, in the Mind Palace? So not the Mind Palace. The Gin Palace is probably more like, did you have a circus circus in your sanity as a child? Yeah. Like it's like off-brand Chuck E. Cheese. It's like a oh, Chuck e. Cheese. we didn't have Chuck E. Cheese. Like you it's had to drive an hour to get to a Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, no. Chuck E. Cheese was far away. Circus Circus is what we got in Lincoln. So like it was not that fancy. So Gin Palace yeah. is like a Chuck. It's like I a had a birthday party at McDonald's and it wasn't even a McDonald's that had a play area. It was just a McDonald's that hosted kids' birthday parties and it was like the place to have a birthday party. You, you had a luncheon. You didn't have a party. You had a luncheon. I'll post, I'll post a photo. I, I found the photos recently of one of the birthday parties and I was poor, right? And my mom's kind of like, not into all that stuff so I maybe had one birthday party at the McDonald's because I big for it so yeah so we're moving yeah so it's somewhere between McDonald's luncheon and circus so gin palaces like have to basically get people in to sell gin there's a few inventions that make a big difference for the gin palaces what do you think those are Oh, okay, I need some, I'm going to ask some clarifying questions from you. So when you're talking about inventions, are you being part of a manufacturing process or part of the user experience? I'm sorry, um, customer it, experience. It enhances the customer experience. These are items that are a big change for the world, mm-hmm. but they, the, it's for the customer. Yeah. Opium, oh. number one. <laughs> Oh, you got opium as an invention. It was invention. Wasn't it? Wasn't it then? Was when opium was hitting the markets and you had opium den? Yeah, so opium dens are a thing. But opium dens, because of the way gym houses were set up, which I'll tell you about in a little bit, don't really work. People hang out way too long. Okay. At the opium dens. So you, uh, you've got to. Fans? Maybe work. some fans? Some sort of. No, because there's not electricity yet. But you're close. Air circulation at some point that makes it be inside where I'm imagining this smoky and stinky a little bit better. So the inventions let you stay inside longer so it's gas lamps oh, so the ability okay. yeah. to not have to have oil lamps right gas yeah. lamps yes also getting down the smoke it would be hot right gas lamps put off a goodly amount of heat but they also had sheet glass at times so you'd have a pane a window pane that you could make pretty easily mm-hmm. so you had and and you also had silvered glass mirrors so mirrors are now more accessible the average person basically it would have been like you would have walked by a gin palace and looked in and there would have been like maybe like a chandelier of gas light and mirrors on behind the bar um mirrors on the walls everything's very shiny and bright and flashy just like my circus circus from my childhood where everything was like lit up and you got tickets and here you also do get tickets because you they don't trust the bar cubes so you uh-huh. have sometimes you'd go to a cashier and get like a token. Oh, actually, I kind of get that, to be honest with you. So you see the gin palaces basically be an extension of 
an assembly line. Mm -hmm. you, go, okay. you go in, yeah. get your token, you get your gin. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to sit down. So some of the jam shops or the sketchy gin shops too would have maybe had somewhere for you to sit. But these places have no, no chairs. It's a long bar, no seating, and you drink your gin, you look around for a little bit, and then you leave. Oh, so it's not like a pub where you would just be hanging out drinking your gin. It's really, like you said, a factory experience. Totally. Because the thing is, you have to keep selling gin quickly at high volumes because it's crappy gin. So we thought that the 1720s had bad gin. Mm -hmm. These places water it down even more. You mean like, like how people water down vodka and tried to pass it off as, what's the fancy vodka that everyone's obsessed with? Goose, Grey Goose? <laughs> One of the geese, the goblins. I don't I mean, know. I don't know. <laughs> this is not the vodka podcast. No. Yeah, so you have crappy gin situation happening. You have pubs at the time that are pretty bougie. You can come here and get a pint, but a pint is, a quarter is more expensive than gin than some of this gin that you would get. Okay, that, that makes sense based on what you just described. So gin palaces were for poor people, basically. Mm -hmm. It was poor migrants, laborers, et cetera, who see all this kind of glamorous experience, right? You don't mm -hmm. have this probably at your home or wherever your, your workhouse, wherever you're staying. And so you come in, you experience this, and then you just kind of stand there drinking by yourself. Mm -hmm. And one thing that people kind of hit on was the fact that it's a very lonely experience. It's very beautiful. Yeah. It's very lonely because you don't really go there with friends. A lot of people go there by themselves. Mm -hmm. And let me, I'm trying to... Was it socially acceptable then, really? Or was it just because it was more for the, the working class to, in a way for them to experience things like windows and gas lights, like what you just said? It was considered like vulgar, but popular. Like oh, the way okay. I, got it. Okay. when I described this to Amber, the wife of Pod, she was so like the 90s. Like, mm -hmm. it seems like, like, 90s clubs, you know? Like, when you see movies from that time period, and Ross is shaking her head, she's like, I was there, I would know. <laughs> it's just, like, very, a lot of high-top tables, and, like, nobody's really there to talk, and it's just kind of tacky, but also, like, flashy. And you've got... Sure, sure. It's an experience, but you have to have a lot of people have this experience, which means nobody really gets to linger. Mm -hmm. And so one article that I really leaned heavily on, I'll send out the references later, is from History Today. So it's written by Jessica Warner, who's a teacher at the University of Toronto's Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Tech. She um, describes the gym houses really well. And one thing I found upsetting is there's the existence of squib glasses. So very small, like thimble-sized glasses, mm -hmm. especially designed for Manchester's child laborers and yeah. which held a half pence worth of gin. Oh, <laughs> Oh, I mean, that's the reality yeah. of life in those days, but it's still rough to hear about it. Yeah, like Manchester, heart of the factory mm -hmm. movement. Um, mm -hmm. And like, you had kids drinking in the slums in the dram shops. Sure. But like, now it's like, it's on special. <laughs> like, it's your happy hour today. And there's a special cup for the, for the baby. Yeah, come yeah. get your baby, baby gin. But also this, the gin palaces, unlike the pubs for a little bit of time, at least, welcomed in women. So Stop it. Whoa. Yeah. At least yeah. they were being so, recognized as a consumer in a roundabout way. A lot of it, that's probably because like more women were moving to the city. Um, mm -hmm. And so they would, yeah. So people, women would go and get a drink. Because mm -hmm. basically you go into the gym house, you get your children, you get a drink, and then you, you, leave, you keep going through the whole process. So potentially a little bit safer, I would assume, because you have more people in one place. Or the dram shops, you might have eight people hanging out mm -hmm. by a counter. But also still not a wonderful experience. That's sure. one thing that the reformers are kind of aghast at. It's like the number of women just like pouring through the gin palace on any given day. But it's like, well, they just got done working and have worked for God knows how long. This is an extension of the escapism. They won in the 1720s. 
Mm-hmm. But this is re- this really is escapism. Like nothing yeah. will look like this anywhere else in the city. So Hannah, does that mean that more women drank gin than men? Was it considered a woman's drink at the time because of that? Well, kind of. So like from the 1720s, gin's called like mother's ruin, right? Gin is is, is that where more that deadly. is that where that Instagram handle came from? Is yeah, that's not because I'm she's from. a mom. Like there's an actual real reference to that. That's fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's history is always fun, right? <laughs> yeah, so like there's kind of like this thing of like, oh, well, women drink too much gin and then like kill their kids, which we talked about with mm-hmm. our story of Judas before. Yeah. But it's also, it's like women can get their hand on it because uh, the hands on it because it's an apothecary. In this case, the gym house is welcome them openly. So I would say, yes, you have more women drinking gin. I don't know how it would shake out if you countered in like people who drink at home because you can mm-hmm. still pick up alcohol and take it to your home. Some women might be more comfortable drinking at home at the time. So it's kind of a mix of weird different social dynamics and mm-hmm. housing situations and all that kind of stuff. Women also at a few gym houses later in this century are working as bartenders. Okay. So that also, I think, contributes some to the more woman-friendly group. But you, you need every potential customer to get through these places because to remodel a gym palace, it is thousands of pounds, literal thousands. Okay, I need to pause there. Someone knocked on my door. Okay, pause. pause. I'll be here. All right, now that we're back from our little break, I've got myself a gin and tonic with uh, some Citadel gin. So women are obviously allowed in the gym houses. They're gaudy AF. Then you also have the issue of, and Ross, you're going to love this, the kind of conspiracy theory around the ownership of the gym houses. What? Oh, yeah. lay it on me. I know. <laughs> because gym palace renovations could be pretty expensive, 3,000 pounds potentially, 4,000 pounds, like it was a lot. And it was a, a huge building that got redone. And so... In the process, you would have people who would have a liquor license, like what we call liquor license now, who needed to be, have it redone so that way they could get people in the door. Mm-hmm. But once you got people in the door, right, you have to decide, what are you going to sell? So they had what was called a tiered, or sorry, not tiered, a tied house system. Really? A distillery or distiller, distiller company would front the money for the renovations and then the pub owner would have to sell only their product. Oh, yeah, that's not a comment of what happens. I mean, we have exclusive rights all the time here. Yeah, the thing is there, like, that was a pretty big deal. And nobody was out and out about it. So here's, like, one quote from the History Today article that I mentioned earlier. One witness spoke vaguely of a company formed in London for the purpose of buying any old, free public house that can be met with. Elsewhere, he baldly claimed that a great many of the palaces were under the control of the great spirit dealers. Which I also want to be called a great spirit dealer, right? It's just a distiller, yeah. It just sounds like you're a god, though. Yeah, it does. Spirit dealers. Or, yeah, maybe a serial killer, maybe a distiller. You don't know. I mean, you're starting to see the rise of serial murdering activities continue. You, you do. And I like that Ross said that, like, history is completely unknown to anyone. No one's ever heard of those. That <laughs> 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 Jack the Ripper stuff. I got no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I actually don't know when Jack the Ripper was. I was trying to think about when Devil in the White Palace. Devil in the White City? (laughs) Not Devil in the White Palace. Devil in the White City. In Chicago. 1880s, 1890s. But no, I mean, we have plenty of serial killers at this time we just don't know about. Oh, yeah, because it only takes, like, you're considered a serial killer after your third murder. 
I love what you say that like it's an attainable skill for all of us. You can totally do it. You can make it happen for yourself. Um, but I'm so, a vegetarian who doesn't believe in killing animals for my substances. So that's, that, that would be rough for me. It would be rough for you. But I do like that you made it sound like it's something that Coursera is teaching right now since everyone's stuck at home. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever wanted uh, to do but Check out, seriously, check out The Murder Squad. Paul Holes, America's Hero. Good day. That's all, that's all she wrote. So you have back to the conspiracy theory about something less nefarious, um, which is basically just running ownership. So the uh, London police magistrate and barrister is trying to figure out like how this all works and get this connected to say, hey, all these palaces are just in the pockets of a distiller. The distiller is just forcing them to sell what they want. There's no quality control. There's nothing that, there's no autonomy, so on and so forth. And you're not really sure if they care about monopoly in some way or if it's really just gin palaces or tacky AF and we don't like it. Sure. Hard to, I, I mean, that's lost to history, but I could see it. I, who knows, right? Yeah. And it's also, you don't, I understand property rights at the time. There's a lot going on there that's changing. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of people who are trying to carve out roles in society for different industries. And that's going to become an even bigger issue, obviously, mm-hmm. when we get into the 1920s mm-hmm. episode. How do you draw the lines between who's a distiller, who's a, who's a bar owner, who's allowed to be a consumer, how is a consumer allowed to access it? Like, yeah, pretty nerdy, but it's also the thought of having distillers own entire swaths of London mm-hmm. is kind of scary to people at the time. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So I remember how I asked you how many locations in the last episode could you buy mm-hmm. gin mm-hmm. so that was six thousand right mm-hmm. how many gin palaces or gin fixer-upper places do you think mm-hmm. exist in london london and the surrounding cities at this time so i include like manchester and other areas oh you're there. gonna you're going to include industrial cities outside of london yeah oh shit hannah <laughs> oh, there are six thousand gin sellers in the 17. 17- I think you're rubbing your head like you're actually doing math and not guessing. I am. I'm trying to think about what the population was at that time. And then I'm thinking about the Industrial Revolution. And I remember the gin sellers have to have a license. So that would have kind of shifted some stuff around. And I'm trying to think of like that labor shed into those cities. And I'm picturing the map of the UK, which wasn't even the UK then in my mind, and population centers. War hadn't happened yet as far as world wars or the Spanish flu. Um, I'm going to go with 2,700. Okay, interesting. Um, ends up being 5,000. So we went from 6,000 to only two people getting licenses mm-hmm. to 5,000 that have a license of some kind. Remember, these numbers are fuzzy, right? This sure. wasn't something that was perfect. But with this whole group, it kind of shows you there's enough demand for gin palace and for mm-hmm. access to gin that you can still have a lot of places open. But it also shows you how many opportunities there was for payoff. Oh, yeah. Why not? We should do that today, Hannah. It could be <laughs> our retirement, how we fund our retirement. The gin mafia. Yeah. I always have to remind myself, like, mafias and mob, like, and gangs, like, they're all really just pyramid schemes. So. Well, I was thinking about, a, like, a, like, a ginner hood, like, a neighborhood <laughs> completely owned by a gin company, and you replicate that throughout all these little artisanal spirit clusters inside of cities. Look like at Hershey, it. Like, like, like Hershey, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, because that all worked out perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> or you know coal towns coal company towns that's like what you just said <laughs> King of coal man. oh man 
So yeah, so you have yeah, widespread set up of gym palaces. So a little bit of an idea of how things have changed. Wait, wait, can I ask you a quick question about this? And maybe maybe this isn't recorded in the in history. So what would, would the what would the ratio be from gin distillers? How many gin distillers per gin palace? You'd have I would say you'd have one distiller to palace situation, and then you would have one distiller would probably flyer or fronting the funds, potentially like one or two or three or four gin palaces, depending on where they are in their renovation. Okay. Right. Like you can't, they don't have enough cash flow that they could float, you know, five places to get redone in the same year. But if you have like a place that needs like $500 worth, $500 worth, 500 pounds worth, and it's kind of scattered all the time, you could be the big owner for multiple. So that's one thing that's a little bit tough is a lot of the distilleries that we know now, it's like Plymouth, Gordon's, mm-hmm. um, I think even Barton's, a few different ones, they're starting to become big names at mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. But they're also competing with local people that don't really follow any quality control. So obviously their mm-hmm. costs are a little bit lower. So from the, my History Today article, at one point, the per capita income was close to 2.2 gallons at the height of the gin craze in 1743. So 2.2 gallons per year of liquor, the height of gin craze. Remember, that's not good liquor. No, oh, that's but a good again, point. I was like, that yeah. doesn't sound like a ton. Sound like a ton, but when it's hyper potent and or potentially just like kind of poisonous, yeah. not great. And that's averaged across everybody of the population. So it's not saying some people drink a lot more, some yeah. people didn't drink at all. Yeah. Um, then in 1831, by contrast, the average English person aged 15 or older was drinking just 1.42 gallons of spirit a year. Oh, okay. So a pretty steep drop, right? You're yeah. dropping by over half a gallon. And you have a larger population, so that's probably contributing to this average dropping a little bit. Got a more international population, more people are immigrating and moving mm-hmm. around in the world. So not everybody's going to be drinking liquor. Some people are not, I mean, so some people are drinking wine, some people are drinking beer. So it kind of pulls that number down a little bit. So here's the part that I think you're going to really enjoy. To put the figure in historical perspective, that's significantly higher than today's average. The Brits today average just over about half a gallon per head of spirits per year. What? I know. It does seem pretty low, right? Like, even if you just figured in all your cocktail pours, that's not very many cocktails. No, but does that control for the differences of population? I don't know. They didn't provide that, okay. that reference. But it also doesn't, it doesn't say how the survey data is collected, right? Are you just asking people to guess how much liquor they consume over a year? Because everyone will lie. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess you can just look at the amount of liquors that distillers are producing and then run your numbers that way. You could. You'd also have to like but follow like, your import and export and your duties you could do that yeah, mm-hmm. through modern systems and figure out just how much is being yeah, i mean you could do the math on that and get close yeah you get close so today's englishman english person is doing half a gallon per head that's how much the average american was drinking in 1830 how many oh gallons? in 1830 in 1830 oh. so remember the height of the gin craze 2.2 gallons in the uk 1831 things have leveled out we have gin palaces people still have access but it's less it's 1.42 gallon spirits the average American in 1830. Oh, goodness. I feel like I drink a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know, even know. I don't have anything to base that on at all. I'm going to go to three. Three gallons. Three? Uh-huh. Okay. More. Stop. Is it really? Yeah. By a lot. <laughs> it's hilariously <laughs> awful. Yeah. 5.9 gallons. The average American was drinking in 1830. <laughs> but do you think that we were drinking that because we weren't brewing beer? We didn't have wine. Like we were just drinking like straight fucking moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, we, de- we definitely didn't have the wine access that you have in Europe at the time. Oh, but um, that's true. People were, I guess, now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, people were self-producing. Yeah. A we lot. don't have 
We don't have the import. Dandelion wine. It might be a fruit wine. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you can use if you use the name the word wine liberally. There's access, but it's not like you have multiple other countries with their own liquor industries yeah. like you have in Europe at the time. Where yeah. the Dutch have Geneva, um, the Spanish have Port and Madeira that they yeah. like imported and working with. France obviously has always had wine. Germans have beer, and they also have their own liqueurs that they're mm-hmm. they're exporting. So the U.S. doesn't really have as close or as tight of an import-export trading system. But yeah, we also have access to a lot of moonshine. Yeah, so Americans are just drinking it up while in the U.K. There's still this kind of tug of war between gin palaces and bars for a while it seemed like the old pubs the pubs that just sold beer Mm -hmm. um and kind of had a much more welcoming but also like bougie and gentleman's club i mean gentleman's club in the gentleman only situation no i got that the gym houses are really pushing their way into that market of yeah the public space is it very community oriented no Mm -hmm. um do you talk to your bartenders like, even at this time, in the 1830s, you have people kind of complaining that, like, they never talk to the bartenders at the gin palace. You don't get to meet anybody. And the way they're set up is there's really long bars, so that way everybody can be served quickly, mm-hmm. which is kind of, again, what you see in, like, some bars in the U.S. or mm-hmm. even in the U.K. still, right? Like, it's a or long bar. I'm thinking about when you go to get a growler fill on a Friday after work. It's really busy so you literally just line up to a long you know a table with a long line of people and you just get your growler filled and you leave and you go home the publicans had been working to make their bars a place people wanted to stay because mm-hmm. their thing was we need to drink more than one glass of beer and beer takes a while to drink mm-hmm. you can't just toss it back especially now the porters at the time Ugh. or the ales even no and, you don't want to do that and they were Not community good. anchors right they turned themselves into community anchors that you know the third yeah. place yeah, totally. The third space. The owners kind of were like, okay, we've got to figure out how to compete with the gen situation. They You start to see bars doing more games. It's like darts becomes more of a thing. Really? Um, cricket. What? Like, the bar culture evolves is directly because of the gym palaces? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so like you already crazy. had some people playing games and stuff, but they start to have more of a setup of like, here's a table and you can sit here with your family if you wanted to. We're family friendly kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. gin palaces had been like, we're family friendly, but just like come and leave and take your little child shot of gin with you. But the thing is, gin palaces eventually peter out. Mm-hmm. They don't have enough people going through. People get tired of really not having a good glass of anything. Mm-hmm. You're not really getting drunk on this. You're not really getting much of a high out of it. You don't meet people at a gin palace. Yeah. You just kind of stand and drink by yourself. Whereas the pubs provide a chance to connect with people that you didn't know before in a city that you've never lived in. You know, it kind of, once you can kind of break into it, you also see beer prices go down. So when beer prices go down, more people can afford to just drink beer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of how this gets started. So yeah, so gin palaces are kind of, you know, petering out. 1829, another large distillery is built. Um, You mentioned them earlier in the podcast. They get licensed in 1829. Mm -hmm. They are beef eaters. Oh, really? 1829. Is yep. that why their logo is of that little man in period clothing? <laughs> um, I, I don't, I didn't get that far. Um, I just know the distillery, if not at the time, beef eaters. So John Taylor and Son is the distillery. Mm-hmm. A lot of the distilleries at this time are kind of more owner name focused, mm-hmm. as a lot of businesses are, but that's the distillery that would become beef eaters. That's cool. I really yeah. should not knock on beef eaters. It has its time and its place, political functions. <laughs> 
in my well, experience. It's also the thing of like you have high volume Jane Productions and like it starts well over a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. these guys have not stopped from this time cranking out a lot of alcohol. No, I mean yeah. I respect that. I honestly that is not amber bullshit. I, I respect that. Yeah. So the B theaters is going, um old Tom Jen becomes a thing, a much bigger thing in the eighteen thirties. Mm-hmm. Um why do you think that Old Tom Gin is called Old Tom? Oh, you know what? I've actually looked this up before because I am going to admit some gin ignorance here. I don't really know what Old Tom is. And I remember I looked it up and I saw why it was named Old Tom. And then I didn't finish reading anything else, nor did I commit it to memory. I do not know. <laughs> There's three different theories. I'll start with the least gross first. Um, one. <gasps> is it really is like Tomcat piss? No, worse. So let's start with the grossest first. Somebody says that a cat fell in the gin vat and they gave it out to people and it gave it a funky flavor and that's why they called Old John. That is worse than cat piss. It is worse. But also as someone who's had a cat die in their car, so I, I... I know that that would not be sweet. It would be rotten and it will test every <laughs> bit of your soul. I didn't kill the cat. I It was hanging out on my engine, I think. It was cold. I forgot to bang on the hood. I started the engine. And then I drove co- cross country with it in my car. And while it thawed from the ice, then I could smell it when I was in Tennessee on vacation. Um, but yeah, so no, it would not have been sweet. That wasn't um, like and, Tennessee whiskey at all. No, no, it was rotten. Like everything inside me died and I had to get my car uh, cleaned out. I, I very much blanched to bought it and relied on the kindness of strangers and basically begging people to take the cat out of my car. Anyways, so that's one theory. Another theory is that Thomas T- Chamberlain at old at Hodges Distillery was the original old Tom. He had an apprentice oh, yeah. who was young Tom. Um, mm-hmm. That's why his apprentice, when he started selling it, called Tom, Thomas Chamberlain's mix, the old Tom Jen, his stuff, the young Tom. You would see old Tom and young Tom on bars and stuff in mm-hmm. the gin palaces. They would, they would say they would sell you a variety of gins that you could choose from. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they were of like consistent quality or varied flavors, mm-hmm. I don't know. Third one that I think is probably the most likely, um, man named Thomas Norris was a Gin Palace employee for a long time, very uh, focused, very hardworking, blah, blah. The Gin Palace, which would have owned, the distillery would have owned the Gin Palace, names the Gin after Thomas Norris, mm-hmm. old Tom. Makes it a little bit more sense because the Gin Palace would have been the one that would have had the final labeling. <laughs> they could have just mislabeled it if they wanted to. I, mean, I could really see number two being the reason. They're both possible. I, I definitely stray away from the cat theory. Do you? I do. I'm not a cat killer, Ross. Don't look at me like I tried to kill a cat. No, um, no. I was just thinking like usually the most outlandish explanation when it comes to like things that happen in history, sometimes that's the real one. But then sometimes it's the most simple one too. I mean, really, I don't know. <laughs> Although, to your point, I don't know how that would catch on not regionally. Like, I could see that being a, a regional thing of a cat died in some vat of gin. Yeah. There isn't Tomcat on the labels, but that could have been something that happened after it was nicknamed mm-hmm. Old Tom. Mm-hmm. So there's that. There's also, like, plenty of our procedurals where people die in liquor and different vats. So I think Ross is more open to that possibility. So, yeah, so Old Tom Gin becomes a thing in the 1830s. It continues to be popular, particularly in the U.S. Um, remember, we kind of were raised on gin of prohibition happens and then old time gin effectively kind of disappears for a while isn't really brought back until a few decades later you have in like the 50s 60s you start to see some people kind of being like 
well, we still make this and they should try to sell more of it and just mm-hmm. more tries. And now we're seeing a lot of people that do barrel aged type stuff looking mm-hmm. at an old Tom as like an extension of that, right? It can be an aged gin to make it a little bit sweeter or it can just be sweetened. There's definitely some room in the market for it. This, historically, that's what was being consumed. Mm, I don't know if I've tried an old Tom, to be honest with you. Yeah, when it's also, it's like one of those things where it's probably going to have to make it on cocktail menus first before people really start to buy it, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah, so we have the gym houses. They kind of fade a little bit. Pubs take over. Pubs kind of make, it, make some moves. Then we get to the near the end of the century the gin palaces are repurposed in the 1880s and 1890s okay so it's kind of more like art nouveau style there's a whole list of they call them victorian gin palaces in london they're really pubs that were redone that were originally gin palaces so if you're gonna split hairs on that you can come after me but i gave my little disclaimer so yeah so if you were to go to london there's a whole list of places you could check out they're really beautiful. They're not nearly as tacky as they were when they debuted. That's gin palaces. Any other questions, Ross? No, not off the top of my head. That- That's the 1820s. Wow. So I feel like we're on a much lighter, higher note than we were after age 1720s. Yeah, but that's still a ride. It is. Very well, interesting. And thanks listeners for listening to the 1820s. So I think the moral of the story is if anybody wants to throw a, a million or so at us, we're willing to help you rebuild the historical <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, we can do that. I can probably oh, yeah. help you find him, though. I mean, but, Brian can tell us. We'll just call Brian. Yeah, Brian. Brian probably would love to talk to us more. <laughs> I, think back to our first I think he's scared slash would love to talk to us. Actually, he do- I know he wants to talk to us more. Listeners, like our first guest, who God love him for being so patient and sitting and talking to us for an hour. I forgot my mic before we started. He was trying to get to an event. He was awesome. Yeah. But he does want to do a part two. I think he just had fun just sitting there talking about stuff that he doesn't get to talk to everyone about. Totally. And I mean, yeah, if listeners, if you've got anybody that would want to chat with us about distillery process or mm-hmm. community engagement with distilleries, anything like that like we're happy to set up a call Mm -hmm. and again we the part of the reason why we bring up distillers that you know might not have nationwide distribution right now or what have you is because we're both located in the midwest chicago indianapolis respectively and it's who we have access to right Mm -hmm. so again we don't know what we don't know we're part of the reason we started this podcast is to learn more about gym because we we love to learn a we're lifetime learners and b i mean (laughs) what else is there to say (laughs) Ross's heavy giggle at the end. Well, um, this has been gin and sometimes whiskey. You can yeah. follow us on Instagram at gin underscore and underscore whiskey. You can also email us at gin.whiskeyinfo at gmail.com. Perfect. Thanks, Ross. I always forget our email because I'm super professional. But yeah, thanks for listening. Next episode will be 1920s. And thank you so much for listening. Cheers. Right.